Hello and welcome to Abscond with Ethan Renault, episode 31. I'm Ethan Renault, and today we will be going through part, what part is this, four of my series on covenants, which I'm super excited about. I'm really excited to share this with everybody. This is a subject I've been uh, really interested in for a super long time. Covenants have always been, to me, the most interesting and foundational part of the entire Bible. Uh, when you read the Bible, you cannot get a complete understanding of it without looking at the covenants or understanding what a covenant is or how they function. If you have not listened to all of the previous episodes on covenants, parts one through three, I highly recommend you do, as you will probably not understand any of this one without that context. So, uh, why don't we just dive right in? We'll get going looking at the Mosaic Covenant, or sometimes referred to as the Sinaitic Covenant, and some people divide this into two different covenants. Um, some people see it as the covenant that God is making with the people of Israel, and then they see the covenant with the Levites, uh, a.k.a. the book of Leviticus, written to the Levites, in case we're wondering where the name of that book came from. Those are all instructions for the Levites. Now, why are the Levites so special? You may know, I, I kind of assume that you have like a cursory knowledge of the Bible, at least. So forgive me if I like assume like, oh, yeah, you know who Levi is, you know, um, but yeah, I guess I haven't really specified <laughs> who the audience is for this podcast. But anyway, Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob. Jacob had 13 sons. Those 13 sons would end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. You have 11 tribes, and then somehow throughout the history of Israel, you end up with two half-tribes. I don't really know what constitutes a half-tribe. It may just be the size, but I don't know. Um, I, I know that part of it had something to do with how Joseph and his younger brother, ooh, what's his name, Ben? It could be wrong. Benjamin? were from the other mother, while the first 11 were from the other mother, Leah and um, Rachel, respectively. So maybe that's why they only, you know, that were designated as half-tribes, because they were from the other mother. But anyway, 13 sons equals 12 tribes. Levi is one of those sons, and therefore, therefore the tribe of Levi, known as the Levites, they were the ones entrusted with the temple worship. We would call them the priests. They were the ones in charge of the sacrifices, the feasts, basically anything having to do with the religious side of Israelite life. So there were special ordinances for um, the farmers of all the other tribes would set aside part of their earnings, profits, cattle, crops, whatever, um, they've set that aside for the Levites because the Levites are not farming their own crops or animals. They are in the temple leading the worship for the rest of Israel. So there's special ordinances for them. That's the book of Leviticus. Therefore, some people call that the Levitical covenant. Uh, for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to lump this all together and refer to it as the Mosaic or Sinaitic covenant. Mosaic because these laws were all handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. So regardless of who they're written for, Levites or the rest of Israel, 
we're just going to refer to them as one covenant for ease because they, they kind of came through Moses. Make sense? Good. So, like we mentioned before, the word covenant in Hebrew is berit, or the, this word means to cut. So whenever you make a covenant, you cut that covenant. Um, the same way we would say we make a deal, they would say we cut a covenant. So the Israelites are about to cut a covenant. How do they know a covenant is coming? I think I mentioned this early on. Um, but do you remember in the Abrahamic covenant when Abram is instructed by God to cut the animals in half down their spines and then place the halves opposite each other? And then what happens is this torch comes and passes through the two halves because that would be common tradition when making a covenant. You would cut an animal in half and the two parties would pass through that covenant, or sorry, that animal, with the idea being that if we break this covenant, may we become like this animal, cut in half, right? So um, we also see the same thing in marriage. You have one half of the family, the bride side, on one side of the room. You have the husband side on the other side of the room, and the two, uh, the husband and wife, walk up individually to the altar, they get married, we go through the procession, the ceremony, and then what do they do? They pass through those two halves together, signifying that a covenant is being made. So where else in the Bible do we see this sort of dividing or separation and then a passing through? We see it right before this Mosaic covenant is made. You've just never thought of it like that. Because the people of Israel leave Egypt, and when they leave Egypt, they're not just leaving a place and a people and a nation, they're leaving behind their identity as slaves. One theologian said that uh, if you ask an ancient Israelite, who is God, they would say, whoever freed us from Egypt is God. This was like core to their identity, it was a transition from being a people of slaves to being a people who are their own free, sovereign nation, right? So in order to kind of symbolize or signify that a new covenant is going to be made with Israel, what happens right after they leave Egypt? They, God divides the water. He divides the water of the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, and they pass through this severed sea on dry land. And when they make it to the other side... God closes the water, drowns all the Egyptians, because he's not making a covenant with the Egyptians, he's making a covenant with Israel. So once they get to the other side, God begins the work of making this covenant with his people, the people of Israel. I'm not going to get too sidetracked with the whole Exodus narrative, we're just going to focus more on the covenantal elements of this, because the whole Exodus narrative would take a long time to go through. I recommend Peter Enns' podcast called The Bible for Normal People. He did a five-part series just on the book of Exodus and on the Exodus narrative, which I thought was super fascinating. So give that a listen if you want to hear more about the Exodus story specifically. Um, so let's look at the three elements of the Mosaic Covenant. First off, 
if you recall, the first element in all these covenants is the, say it with me, bloodshed. The blood. Where do we see blood in the Mosaic Covenant? It's actually kind of a gross story. I actually really enjoyed teaching this when I was a youth pastor because I, I didn't use real blood or even any liquid, which would have been really fun. Um, instead, I just cut up a bunch of red confetti and then I sprinkled that all over the kids, like red confetti. Because in um, Exodus 24, verse 8, we see that Moses is making, the, I mean, the heading for this section of Scripture is called the Covenant Confirmed. So God is confirming or making this covenant with his people. And um, they all agree that they will follow the laws God gives them. And then... Moses and some young men sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So already we see some agreements, some vows being, being made by the people of Israel. Then in verse 8, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses literally just takes blood from these bulls, sprinkles it all over the people, which just imagine there's about a million people in the tribe of Israel at this time period. They estimate that about a million people, 1.2 million people came out of Egypt. Imagine having enough blood to sprinkle it on 1.2 million people. That's a lot of blood being sprinkled on a lot of people. And I don't know if they like specifically made sure that blood covered every single person or if it was like symbolic, they just kind of scattered it broadly over whoever was closest to them. I don't know. But they sprinkled blood of the bulls all over these people, which is pretty hardcore. Like you thought that death metal show you went to in Germany was pretty hardcore. Look at what Moses did when he makes this covenant. He sprinkles the blood all over these people. It's also worth noting that Moses uses the exact same language Jesus does later when he's having his last supper with his disciples. This is the blood of the covenant, right? Jesus says this is the blood of the new covenant. So people would have picked up really quickly that the, the language being used there is identical to that Moses used which is one of the links between Jesus and Moses, because they're waiting for a Messiah or a prophet who would come and be a new Moses, who would speak to God face to face, just as Moses did. So any connection drawn between Jesus and Moses helps to point out the fact or highlight the fact that Jesus is the new Moses. He is the prophet who was spoken of, who would come and deliver the people, and be the new Moses, and speak to God face to face on behalf of the people. So, Jesus is the new Moses. He makes this new covenant with God by using the same language that Moses did. Just something people would have noticed in the first century when Jesus lived. So, the second element of this covenant is the blessings and curses, right? We're not going to go through all 613 laws, because that is essentially what is laid out in this covenant for the blessings and curses. If you remember, we have Noah who had four, four rules to follow. Then you have Abraham who has no rules to follow. He only has blessings from God. 
Um, Adam had a very simple one. Uh, Take care of the earth, but don't eat from these trees. And then Moses, God is making a covenant with an entire nation. Because remember, prior to this, we, we only had like tribes and patriarchs and really people just kind of traveling around in tents. And it wasn't necessarily a nation in the way that we think of a nation. But here with Moses, after Egypt, for the first time, Israel is being recognized as a nation. So accordingly, God has to lay out rules, laws, for how this nation needs to function. And by following these laws, they will be separated, they will be set apart from all the surrounding nations. Now, these laws that, um, that Moses has handed down from God... I do want to historically be honest with you about the nature of these things. So uh, um, about two, three hundred years before Moses, you have this Babylonian king named Hammurabi. And Hammurabi went up to a mountaintop. He spoke with the god Shamash face to face. And Shamash gave Hammurabi the code which is now known as the Code of Hammurabi. And this is one of the oldest architectural, sorry, archaeological examples of how the ancient people wrote, thought, and spoke. And this is the first place, the Code of Hammurabi is the first place that you see laws such as an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, right? Because prior to that time, you didn't have a system of governance set up where this would be enforced. It would be like if someone popped out your eyeball, you go and you slaughter their entire family and all their cows and their cattle and you burn their house to the ground. <laughs> so it was it was more like overzealous retribution, right? That's like that's not equivalent. Like if someone accidentally chops your finger off, you don't go slaughter their children and wife and you know. So uh, actually, it's it's a step toward merciful justice, right? If you if you put a limit on the retribution someone's allowed to to pay, on the vengeance they're allowed to have, you are by nature limiting their scope of justice. So if you say an eye for an eye, like that's fair. Someone takes your eye, you can take their eye. Someone takes your finger, you can take their finger. Like it it, it creates this system of fairness. So this originates in the code of Hammurabi. And then Moses in the Torah, in the law that God gives Moses, it's taken a, a little bit further, not a whole lot, not as much as we would think is fair, but a little bit further because there are provisions added. There's a lot of similarities to the Code of Hammurabi, which we may look at and as you know, a critical scholar would look at that and say, oh, Moses just copied Hammurabi because this is what the people in Mesopotamia in Sumer, in that area of the world, this is what they would have been familiar with at that time, at that point in history. You know, a prophet goes up the mountain. The mountain is where you interact with God. You come down from the mountain with a code. Hammurabi's code was also carved into stone, which is why we still have it today. So that, that begs a lot of questions, which I don't really want to get into, such as historically, like, did Moses actually do that? Or were they just following the tradition of Babylon when they recorded these stories later on? Um, things like that. But Moses's code, the law of Moses, actually takes a step further because they add in provisions 
for people like widows, orphans, aliens living among you, you know, strangers, refugees, all these things. So it kind of goes above and beyond where the Code of Hammurabi took law. Like, we would still think it's a little bit barbaric because there is some retribution of, like, chopping off hands and whatnot. But um, historically, it's, it's an advance forward from where they were prior to that. So you have 613 rules, laws for the people to follow to show that they are in the covenant with God. And over time, what would happen, you know, between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus, especially during the intertestamental period, you have the Talmud, which is written as a series of man-made laws. So if you think about like God's law as a little fenced in area, and it's like, don't go, you know, like don't break these boundaries. They would build the Talmud around that additional laws to make sure that they really didn't break the Torah to ensure that they really wouldn't break God's law. So you have like kind of man-made laws as a buffer to prevent you from breaking God's law. Understand? So when Jesus comes later, he does some things which actually contradict the Talmud. Like he will break man's laws, but he won't break God's laws. So a lot of the Pharisees get upset with him. And by the way, Jesus probably would have been a Pharisee um, based on his understanding of resurrection and things like that. That's just the uh, religious sect he would have aligned with the most. But Jesus breaks some of these man's laws, these the Talmud laws, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, get really upset with him, not because he's breaking God's laws, but because he's breaking their laws, which they added onto the Torah. And then lastly, we have the sign, seal, and symbol of the Mosaic Covenant. And this one is a little strange. It's, I mean, it, it's pretty straightforward because it says it in the text pretty straightforwardly, but it's not quite as like clear cut as the rainbow. Like, look, there's a rainbow. God's not going to flood the earth again. Like, it's not like a straightforward symbol like that. So if you look at Exodus 31, 13, God says, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who made you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. So, the Sabbath, God said it pretty straightforwardly, observing the Sabbath is the sign between God and the generations to come. This observation of the Sabbath is the sign of this Mosaic Covenant. So Jesus comes along, and what does he do? He does a lot of things on the Sabbath. And um, the, it's the religious leaders get really upset with him, and they say, oh my gosh, you're breaking the Sabbath. And seeing it as the sign, seal, symbol of this covenant, we get a better sense of why that's such a big deal to them. He's not just breaking one of the Ten Commandments or one of the 613 laws. He's breaking the sign of the covenant. Not just an, one of the arbitrary, like, you know, deuteronomical laws, right? He's breaking the law, in essence. Now, why is the Sabbath so important to the Israelite people? They've just come out of slavery where work 
you know, Karl Marx would probably be happy with this, but their work was distanced from them. Their work was forced upon them. Their work was a sign of their submission to a dominant authority who was not God. Their dominant authority in Egypt was Egypt. They're slave drivers. If their slave drivers had work, they worked. So when God says that, actually, you're going to have one day of rest per week, he's saying that your new authority is not Egypt, and you will show this on the day of rest. You will show the authority that you submit to with your lives is not your work. You're not slaves anymore. Your authority is me. And I like to work, but I also like to rest. Right? God obviously rested in Genesis 1. He worked for six days and then he rests. What's that? There's a Josh Garrel song. He says, my rest is a weapon against... Okay, hang on. I'm going to look this up real quick. In the song Resistance, he says, my rest is a weapon against the oppression of man's obsession to control things. Look at the long line of make-believe kings, and the Lord of the Flies wants you to kiss his ring. Follow new rules with invisible strings, and become a puppet in a diabolical scheme. How do good men become a part of the regime? They don't believe in resistance. Phenomenal song. One of my top three favorite Josh Garrel songs. But you see how rest is kind of framed as a weapon against oppression? Um, if you're oppressed, you don't get to choose when you rest and when you work. However, if you can structure your own week and you're able to not work on a given day, you're in essence like showing by the way that you live your life, my work does not control me. No human authority controls me. I rest because I belong to God. So that's a really poetic way of thinking about it. Not, not so much as like a legalistic, you need to rest, otherwise you're breaking the Sabbath and you're a bad Christian. But more along the lines of like, when we rest, we honor God who also rests and created us to rest. I mean, I heard a statistic a while back that Chick-fil-A, which is closed on Sundays, that their machines last four times longer than all other fast food restaurants simply because the machines themselves get that day of rest once a week. I don't know if that's true or not, but if so, it's crazy how God like created all of the world to function on this rhythm of Work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest, right? And so how do you show that you are not enslaved by other authorities other than God? You choose to rest on the Sabbath. So that's why it was such a big deal. It was the sign of the covenant. It symbolized freedom from oppression, from human oppression, and um, devotion to God. So does Jesus really break the Sabbath when he comes? Um, he has a couple things to say about that later. You should go read all those passages yourself so I don't butcher the, the text without <laughs> looking at them. But Jesus basically says Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So that would be the way of becoming legalistic about it. And then the other thing to note is that Jesus also says he heals somebody on the Sabbath and he says, which is, which is good, uh, which is better to, to heal, to give life on the Sabbath or to kill and destroy on the Sabbath. So did Jesus really break the Sabbath? Obviously not, because we, we agree that he's sinless, that he didn't sin when he was on earth. And he, you know, he's God who created this covenant with Abram, sorry, with Moses. So why would he go and break it? Um, I think what he does is he re, repaints it, reframes it, gives it new life 
It says this is actually the meaning behind these things that you've been acting out for hundreds of years. So uh, to summarize the rest of the Torah, uh, I mentioned the book of Leviticus is written to the Levites who were the temple keepers. They were the priests and they were responsible for Israel's religious, you know, life. So that's what the entire book of Leviticus is about. In Numbers, you have some stories, some history of what happens in the wilderness, but you also have Moses counting the Israelites, and literally it consists of a lot of numbers. Coincidentally, it gives you one of the best Christian pickup lines you can use, which is, I was reading the book of Numbers earlier today, and I didn't see yours in it. So use that on somebody, and if you do, let me know if it's successful or not, because I don't think I've ever actually used it. In fact, I know I haven't. <laughs> I've been too timid. But if you actually use that pickup line, I would love to hear about it. And then Deuteronomy uh, comes from two words, deutero, which means second, nomos, which is law. So it's the second law. So there's a lot of repeats of laws that were given in Exodus. Um, and it also includes the death of Moses, which is another rabbit trail I won't go down. But just ask yourself the question, if Moses really wrote all of the Torah, how did he write about his own death? Very good question. I don't really have a complete answer for you. There are people much smarter than me wrestling with that question. But um, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, includes the death of Moses, and so on and so on. So I'll wrap that up here. Hopefully this was helpful in understanding at least some of the reasoning or thought behind the Mosaic law. The law of Moses, the law of Mount Sinai, whatever you want to call it. Why that covenant is important in the development of Israel as a nation. Because if you're a nation, you need laws in order to function properly. You can't just be you know, tribal people with laws. You also can't be a nation without laws. So this is a big milestone in the progress of Israel from being, you know, Abram, this old dude without any kids who's going to die soon, to actually becoming a nation as God had promised Abram in Genesis 12. So if this series is interesting to you, please let me know. Send me an email at ethanreno at gmail.com. You can contact me through ethanreno.com or Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at ethanreno. Um, I love hearing, hearing back from you. Some people have replied that they really find this series interesting, which is uh, really encouraging. Gave me a lot of motivation to keep it going and to record more of these. So, um, yeah, let me know. Also, let me know about future topics if you want to hear about more things from the Bible, from theology, from current events. Whatever it is you're interested in hearing about, I would love to serve you, do as much as I can to help you understand the Bible and theology better. So let me know. Reach out to me in those ways. This is Ethan Renault with Abscon Podcast, episode 31. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll talk to you soon.